yeah, they're just, they're, they're blown away by the expressiveness of students and by what it looks like and feels like for a student to really be struggling with a concept. And that's okay. We talk about desirable difficulties and threshold concepts and all these theoretical things about learning. But what do we do when we're faced with that as educators and having that kind of holistic picture that it's okay to be faced with that sort of challenge, that, that it isn't gonna be all smiles and sunshine in the classroom all the time, but that's what we're after. Welcome to Centering Centers, a pod network podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. The Pod Network is North America's largest educational development community, supporting members' professional learning through meaningful and sustained interaction. This podcast is an initiative led by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee of Pod. To get more involved in the DRI committee or this podcast, just send us an email at dri at podnetwork.org. This is episode 30 of the Centering Centers podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Lindsay Dukopoulos. I serve as the Associate Director for Educational Development at the Big EO Center at Auburn University and co-chair of the Pod Network's DRI committee. Today, we speak with Cassandra Volpe-Hori and Martin Springborg about their new book, What Teaching Looks Like, Higher Education Through Photographs. Cassandra is the Associate Vice Provost for Education and Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Stanford University, a former president of the Pod Network and founder of educational development centers at the California Institute of Technology and Curry College. Cassandra brings her background in STEM and college writing instruction to life in her current work on educational and systemic change at her institution and in higher education more broadly, as well as through projects such as a collaboration we will discuss in today's episode. Martin Springborg has worked in the field of educational development since 2007. His writing and photographs on the topic of teaching and learning in higher ed have appeared in Thought and Action and to Improve the Academy. Stemming from his work as arts faculty and in educational development, he also co-authored the books Meaningful Grading, A Guide for Faculty in the Arts, and of course the book we will be talking about today, What Teaching Looks Like, Higher Education Through Photographs. I am so excited today to talk with Cassandra Horry and Martin Springborg about their book, What Teaching Looks Like, Higher Education Through Photographs. And I want to just start by asking you all to give us a brief description of what this book is and what makes it different from other books on the market. Sure, I can start that description. Basically, it's a coffee table book for Centers for Teaching and Learning. That's how I like to think about it, but really it's the result of more than a decade's worth of making documentary photographs about what it is to teach and learn in higher education. And it has chapters that wrap around those photographs to discuss the current state of higher education in the United States. Did you start taking these photographs with the idea of making a book or did the idea of making a book come after you had 
been photographing for a while. The idea for the book came pretty much as a direct result of the collaboration that Cassandra and I formed around this project. She really had the idea to take it to another level beyond just the photographs and branch out into having conversations with faculty about the photographs. And that led, that just kept leading to more things, more investigation, uh, and eventually the book. And Lindsay, I'll just add, it's been really an amazing collaboration, a longstanding one as well. And the point that you made about what's different about this book is something that on reading and reception out in the higher education community, that's the biggest thing that we're hearing back from people. So we're getting a lot of reviews and responses that say, this is not like any other book on higher education. Uh, and that's pleasing, right? But it could be different in bad ways and good ways. But I think what we're hearing back, which makes me so happy, is that it's people are finding it to be deeply engaging because of the ways in which it's weaving image and text and evidence-based reflection together and then helping people go in a to a new place in their own teaching practice. And I'll just say, like, a lot of us in educational development we're change agents, right? We're trying to improve the state of teaching and learning with our faculty colleagues for students and for educators too. There's a lot about how to teach, so many publications. There's a growing amount of work on how to change education for the better. But I think what this book does, it gets at the why. Why do we change? Why do we need to change? What makes us want to change in a way that's like acknowledging the deep commitment that people have to, to students and to higher education while also not shying away from what's hard about what we're trying to do. So that kind of balance between the how but the deeper why is something I'm just so glad that we've been able to get at in this book. And can you unpack that a little bit? How do photographs get us to the why, the importance of making changes to our teaching? What I, one thing that I talk about when I go to colleges and make these photographs, often I'll have a talk using the photographs that I made at the institution. One of the things I talk about is just that. So what makes photographs easier to get into or more approachable? And it is because uh, photographs are a more universal language. They're easier to break through. They're, they don't require much digestion in the beginning, right? Certainly there's a lot you can go into with a photograph and get deeper, but they do resonate almost immediately. You grab onto something that either the photographer wants you to see or that lines up with something that you've experienced in your own life. Immediately then, when you find that thing in the photograph, you have a connection to it. It's harder to do that. But it's not, I'm not saying it's impossible to do that, but it's harder to do that. And it takes more time to do that with the text. So that's, I think that's, in my opinion, is the beauty of photographs to cut through some of that stuff. One of, the, waiting. one of the first collaborations that we did. So after Martin came and photographed at Caltech, where I was fairly new about 10 years ago, starting up a center for teaching and learning. And following that, we started this effort of showing the photographs to the people whose classes had been photographed and developed a protocol around consulting based on photographs and a formal study of that. And what 
the photographs prompted compared specifically to other kinds of class observations or video recording, those things can be very helpful and effective. So we don't want to disadvocate for any of that happening, but the photographs rose things in a way that helped people go a little deeper with their reflection and observe interactions, traits about students, qualities of emotion, of presence um, that they had not seen before. And as you're talking a lot about the scholarship of educational development, I also will just say that First, I hope people read the text as well as look at the photographs. They are pretty co-equal in the text. And that's something that we thought about very carefully. And the scholarship, when, so when we go outside of our typical domain of reading and work, in this case, into some of the literature on photography, the critical work on the role of photographs, what special traits photographs bring, what they can and cannot do, and why we use them, why we are drawn to them. It opened up a whole batch of insights and it was pretty interesting and I think daunting for me to work through some of that literature and agree with Susan Sontag on some things, very famous people who have talked about photographs and in some ways, yeah, yeah. So Susan Sontag critiques the ways in which photographs can freeze that moment in time and in fact calls that freezing insulin because it may misrepresent because maybe it takes us out of the flow in a way that removes us from reality because of the evidence that Martin and I had of speaking with educators who looked at their photographs and said I have never seen my students in this way I never thought about my relationship with the space some examples we quote from in the book from those interviews but like I remember one person saying, I never realized that I'm only using these three feet of the classroom between the podium and the chalkboard and how much space I actually have to go and interact with my students. So it opens things up in this new way. But because of that evidence, we needed to say back to some of this critical literature that freezing can be helpful. Let's act on it in authentic and helpful ways toward the positive changes that we hope for. Uh, that is, and it, it's so interesting, and it makes me wonder in what other ways to use an obvious pun here. Did this work bring a lens into the work you're doing, both as a faculty member for the courses you teach or as a faculty developer? Looking at things through the lens of the, the discipline of photography, but also from this kind of cultural critical standpoint, because there is such a conversation right now about using social media to create an image of one version of your reality without the full kind of picture. And I could see where you could look at this and want to make that argument. I think once you start looking at the photos, you see a different kind of side, but theoretically, it seems like a really interesting sort of challenge to, to consider. And I'm curious if you've thought about that. So I, when, when, when I was working on this book with Cassandra, I was a director of teaching and learning, a director of center for teaching and learning. So my job was all about educational development, working with faculty. And when the book was published, first published, I was in that position. And immediately upon its publication, I was invited to department meetings to talk about the photographs because faculty are so excited about the book. And these are faculty at a 
community college and a technical college, they see themselves in the photographs. It's easy for faculty to see themselves in these photographs. And the photograph is just that sort of entry point. And so then you get, like Cassandra was saying, there's much richer material in the text. So it's, it provides that, that entry into this uh, scholarship. And so in practice, as an educational developer, it just gives me that in because here's something that that faculty are excited to, to see and that immediately resonates with them. It's hard to get faculty to, to say, form a community of practice around material that's harder to digest or to or harder for them to see in their teaching practice. So it was, I'll just say that about my own experience using the book in my own context. I'm moved on to a dean role now, so I have less of that kind of work with faculty, but I'm excited to hear about other people using the book in the same way. That makes sense. And like what you said, Cassandra, that it becomes this tool to prompt reflection. Many of these images are so when I look at the faces of the faculty members and it, uh, I know the emotion they're experiencing, that kind of, you're reaching them. They're buying into what you're saying. And some of the other ones that are <laughs> the more tense sort of moments. And it really yeah. does. It's so rare to see anybody teaching up close in this focused way. Because we're always, certainly as developers, we're thinking so much more about the students and the impact of the teaching that the... <laughs> The teacher themselves gets lost a lot of times and it, the emotions that you can read on the faces of the faculty that you've captured in so many of these images is so powerful and striking and rich. I'm wondering what kind of feedback or response have you gotten from the faculty who are seeing themselves in these moments? Yeah, I can tell a few stories about that. So one of the add-ons that is available on the book's website is a set of close observation exercises that can be incorporated into conversations or even just model how you might do that, maybe with images from your own institution. And those tap into a number of themes. I was using one of those, I think it was the one about classroom spaces, with a group of educators, faculty, instructors, lecturers, graduate teaching assistants at my own institution as part of our teach, teach conference, a conference on teaching. And I was blown away. So I've been looking at these images and working with the text and deeply embedded in this project for a number of years. And yet when my colleagues looked at these images, which were about the space, presumably, right, about the lecture hall and the rows and the ways in which we overcome the fixed furniture to be doing the kind of interaction and forms of teaching that we want, and also the challenges of spaces like that. And some of the things that my colleagues saw were, like you're saying, Lindsay, the emotion involved, the sense of risk that those instructors, faculty who were in the photographs were at times taking, like it, it's scary. It can be scary right? <laughs> to get up in front of a large room full of students and be live annotating notes and also be trying to really bridge the connection to interact with students in meaningful ways. And that's so important to acknowledge and to recognize and then to support, which is then the work of, of educational developers. So again, working at the why and some of the deeper barriers, if that's at play for someone who's thinking about changing their approach to teaching a large class, 
until we name it and address it, we may not be able to help someone consider a substantial change. So that's that was just one really meaningful moment. But I'll just say, I think faculty too, that we've worked with have sometimes really zoomed in on what students are doing because uh, Martin, when he photographs, really moves around the room in a way that like if you're video recording, you might just get one fixed camera angle from like the back corner. But because Martin gets up close and captures those kind of intimate interactions, which is a particular style of photography that's I think really important as a part of this project, as the, the foundation of it, um, yeah, they're just, they're, they're blown away by the expressiveness of students and by what it looks like and feels like for a student to really be struggling with a concept. And that's okay. We talk about desirable difficulties and threshold concepts and all these theoretical things about learning, but what do we do when we're faced with that as educators and having that kind of holistic picture that it's okay to be faced with that sort of challenge, that, that it isn't going to be all smiles and sunshine in the classroom all the time, but that's what we're after. That's, that's liberal education. That's what we're striving for, that kind of deep thinking. I love that. And as you're talking about that, I've got the book open, which it's, I love that it's a digital open access easy to, it's just, it's such a wonderful format, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, but these photos of the students, as you're mentioning that there's always, there tends to be a focal student in these groups of students, but each, it differentiates your students. It's not all students are the same. They've all got this unique expression at this one moment, which kind of stands in for all the students and all the moments. And it's just such a, I think a helpful reminder that when we're preparing things or when we're thinking about our students, they are individuals. And the more we can isolate that individuality or differentiate them or bring that individually individuality out, the richer the conversation and the classes get. I'm having fun interpreting your photos. That's a Lindsay, is there one yeah. that's that you have open that you could describe in terms of what with this that student, that one student? Yeah, and how absolutely. they're unique. So it's on page 112. It's called Students Participate in a Large Physics Class at a Doctoral Institution. And there's one young man right in the middle who's looking up, curious, but clearly the light is not on yet for this person. And others are studiously looking down at their paper. One guy up front is smiling. He looks more relaxed than the other. So you can see all these students having this on the timeline of following along with whatever's happening at the front of the room. They're at a different kind of marker at that timeline, mm -hmm. which is, it's just so interesting to look at. That was an amazing description. I really appreciate how you describe like what's going on in the middle, what's peripheral. And this might be just a fun moment to point out. One of the things that we really love about the digital version is that the descriptive text for the photographs is available right there in the PDF in an accessible way. And that's both a tool for anyone who isn't able to see the photographs, who is blind or visually impaired. 
And it's a different kind of reflection to look at the descriptive text. So that was something that was really important to us to embed in a way that would be right there with the version. And your description was just as wonderful as the ones that, that Martin wrote for the images. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Excellent. That <laughs> it is, it's really gratifying to look at something together and then talk about the different perspectives and things that it brings forth, which is just another really powerful aspect of using images in this work or to spark conversation and reflection on any kind of topic. Martin, do you have a photograph where a student has always really stood out to you in that sense of their individual characteristics or situation? Yeah, I, what always comes to mind when we're talking about that is the panda suit. So I was making photographs at a doctoral institution, I'll just say a large doctoral institution. And this was, they let me photograph an exam that was in process. And uh, it was a, one of these huge exam halls or huge lecture halls filled with students from sections of the same course, all taking the same exam. And uh, there's one student in the front row and they were dressed in a panda suit. And that just has always stood out to me. Like that image um, has been one of the ones that is just always jumps out and my thoughts when anybody asked that question about a unique or particular student I observed in a class, but yeah. And I just, my thought in the moment was a student, that's probably a suit that, that brings them some comfort, right? Brings them down a little bit from test anxiety. It also has a hood. So they're, they also have the panda hood up. So they're really not distracted by anything else in the room. And they can, I just imagine that it brought them focus and peace. One of, one of the photographs that I remember seeing and then speaking with the faculty member about is of a student sitting at a desk. I think there's a computer in front of the student, but laid out next to them on the table in this clearly very careful way is a uniform for a job. Looks like a food, maybe food service uniform, kitchen type uniform, bright white. And it, that photograph, I remember it striking all of us when we were talking about those photographs, because it's like encapsulating this student working and going to class and juggling many responsibilities. And I think it just was this microcosm of, oh, wow, our students are bringing so much with them into class. And in this case, we could see it, but in so many cases, we don't, we don't see that, but we can expect that students are bringing all of those very complicated life situations with them. Are there photographs that didn't make it into the book? And what were the criteria you used to select the ones that did make it into the book? I see oh, you shaking man. your head, Cassandra, as if this was a real point of- There's tens of thousands of photographs, right? So Martin's been photographing at institutions, dozens of institutions for a decade, for more than a decade. So- yeah, that was a thing that <laughs> was quite a process. Yeah. What was exciting, one exciting part of this collaboration and project, especially when we got into the book, was bringing our disciplines to the work, our backgrounds within our disciplines to the work. So we come from very different places. So can you share what your disciplines are? For sure. I have a master's of fine arts with an emphasis in photography. Yeah, and I'm from 
physics and atmospheric chemistry. So anyway, we reached a point where we had gone through so many photographs remotely together, like in we had shared galleries that we were picking and choosing from. And at one point, I just said, look, I just am not used to, to looking at photographs this way. I have to see them on the wall and just take them down and put them up. Physically, it has to, like when I put a show together, when I put a, an exhibition together from hundreds of photographs and I have to whittle them down, that's how I have to do it. And uh, I have to see what they look like side by side. And sometimes there are three together that I'm meant to be together. So anyway, Cassandra flew from California to Minnesota and we took two days with mountains of print photographs and we got a, a conference room in a hotel to lay everything out, pin everything on the wall. That's how we made final decisions about the photographs. It was, it was great. We even brought text to that so that we could see what the photographs looked like together and with text on the wall. Yeah, that was at a point where the book was probably like 80, 85% finished. We had all the chapters mostly written, at least solid outline for what would go in them, the initial choice of photographs. It was a pretty amazing process for me because I, of course, don't come from having done that a lot. Although Martin and I had put show, a, a photo, photograph exhibit together at Caltech, along with our a colleague from the um the writing center and input from the university archives. So it was archival photographs and modern photographs. And I think we have a video, uh, like a time-lapse video of doing the big wall of that exhibit that had maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40 photographs on it. But before that, I hadn't really had experience with that process. And it was, I'll just say in terms of our time, it was the very last possible moment when I could have taken that flight right before the pandemic. I got back and days later, we were shut down and moving everything online, which threw a little bit of a wrench into our timeline. And yet we finished and it's out. So it was good. How was the collaboration like between the two of you? Is it Oh, you like that one? Great. I like this one. Or was it, no, we don't need that one. We need, where was, I think collaboration, we always think about it as this happy thing where we all do the work together, but the real value of collaboration, you've got to have conflict there. And people, like you're saying, Martin, at some point you just can't see the photographs anymore or that you're seeing them in a different way. How did that work between the two of you in terms of putting this project together, both in terms of the text, but also choosing the photographs or well, curating? Cassandra is such a thoughtful and brilliant writer. And uh, I remember a few times, not many times, maybe just more times, but where I would say, we don't need this photograph. This is not working out. And she'd say, what? I have a whole chapter in my head that revolves around that photograph. She'd already put it all together in her mind and in her notes. And I'd be like, okay, that photograph can stay. Yeah, let's do it. But things visually wouldn't just wouldn't click for me. And then she will have she would have made this whole uh, this whole chapter around a certain set of images, and it was critical. And uh, I think we both we figured great things to the collaboration. We figured it out. I remember those moments too, where I felt very strongly about about 
something particular, but we shifted stuff around, right? So that it, I think in the end, the visual component works really well. Sometimes we moved stuff though. So there were changes to the text that happened because the photographs really needed to speak to each other in a different way. I would just add too, like another collaborator on this was Elon University and the Center for Engaged Learning and their willingness to listen to our arguments about how photographs needed to appear and what needed to be big on a page and smaller and how they would interact with the text and with each other. They were very thoughtful and, and kind and really tried to get what we were after. And I think also did a beautiful job with the design of the book and the fonts and just how it all appears and comes together. I'm hopeful yeah. in a future episode, we can interview the Elon folks who are doing this series, but I'm so curious at what point in the process did you decide to publish the book with them or how did that kind of collaboration come about? We wanted administrators and staff and student affairs folks to all get something from this book. And it was really important for us for the images and text to work together. And Cassandra mentioned this at the beginning of our session here, that they're, they're really co-equal parts of the book. And so we didn't want the text to say, describe a set of photographs or the photographs illustrate or serve as illustration for a body of, they, they play off of one another as these co-equal, co-important parts of the book. And Elon the staff at Elon really got that. They understood that. And they were really careful with that. I'm also thrilled that it is open access at, and the digital version is right there for people. I it fully acknowledge that people should be paid for their work. And I deeply appreciate that more nonprofit presses are writing about, publishing about, advancing teaching, learning, change in higher education, and that more resources are available. I think this book was so different from anything else that that access point was also really important for us. And because I'll just speak for myself. The writing was something I really enjoyed. Parts of it had grown out of the work that I was doing, what I was thinking about in terms of how change works. I didn't necessarily view it as something separate and was really glad to have it in this format. And I just want to make sure to appreciate the great work that's going on across different forms of publishing. I have a little, I have an anecdote to drop in here about working with the folks at Elon. There were some points at that toward the end that were real fine tuning. And so I'm going to give another example photograph here. It's a photograph of a student in an instructor's office and it's during office hours. And so there's a single student sitting with the faculty members, obviously coaching the students on a homework or an assignment. And uh, the photograph is a landscape. And so at the very extreme left side of the photograph, you can see another student sitting in the hallway outside the faculty member's door. So it shows like there, there are, even after this student is done, there's still more, there's still another student waiting. And I wanted that photograph to really speak to that 
part of faculty work. There's always another student, but I also, it's important to see obviously the work that's being done in the moment with that one student that's, that is in the office. So there are extreme sides of the frame. The way that the book is laid out, that part, the extreme left part of the book or the photograph would have been clipped, but the Elon staff heard our heard that was important for that to be the, for the message of the photograph to come through. And they made a few adjustments to the pagination because they because we had a couple photographs like this. And then some seriously, some work had to go in the pagination and layout to make those photographs, you know, to keep those photographs intact. And they did that. So that was image 6.01 at the beginning of chapter six, if people want to check it out. And the fact that there are those little details, I hope also makes it really fun for people to come back to this book as the coffee table book, as Martin said, to pick it up and look at it and read a little bit as people are preparing for teaching, as they're, I don't know, launching a committee about student well-being, as they're thinking about their administrative structures to catch those details and come back to keep noticing and reflecting on what's most important about the work that they're doing. I love, and I think as a kind of coffee table book, it is such a useful thing to share with folks in our centers who aren't necessarily faculty developers, like folks who do the Canvas support or the program administration or whatever. There's lots of different kinds of work and roles. And this book has given us at my center, first of all, it's one of the few things I've shared out that others have actually engaged in conversation with me. We have a Slack channel to share scholarship of educational development and social things. That's sometimes a little bit of an echo chamber, but when I shared this, people were like, oh, that's so interesting. And they were talking about, I wonder why it's black and white. I wonder why it's this. And it sparked a conversation immediately. You know, the day I shared the link, people were chiming in. And I found that to be a really remarkable <laughs> outcome of, of this book as well. If you all want to comment on the black and white debate that we've been having at my center. I just wanted to thank you, Lindsay, for sharing it. And it's really fun to hear what the response has been. But the black and white question definitely goes to Martin as the yeah. photographer. So this, I'm used to answering this question. It gets asked a lot. And I'm going to take up Cassandra's idea. Uh, since we are in Zoom, and I'm going to share two versions of the same photograph with you, and I'm going to let you, for your listeners, describe what are the differences. And so I'm going to pull the black and white version first. This is fun. This is our first live game that we've had on this podcast. <laughs> so I'm very excited about this moment. And Surely so not the last. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> so you, um, Lindsay, if you would just... Tell me what you see first. Tell me what your eye goes to first and then where it goes after that and describe the photograph for your listeners. Okay, so it's a large lecture, tiered lecture. The seats are like those movie theater seats flipped down. It's full of students. There's one young man in the foreground who's looking up at the screen and his peers are pointing at the screen. So they're trying to make him look at something and in the background, there's a fuzzy image of what looks to be the professor or somebody dressed like a professor just looking around at the students. Okay. 
Okay, now I'm gonna, and I'm just, before I move to the color version, what would you say are the key points that your eye goes to first? Like, where are you drawn to in this photograph? And Oh, the young man in the foreground and his teammates pointing something out. It looks like they're doing some kind of peer instruction activity where they're all trying to get each other on the same page. And in the background, all the students are chatting also. So it's like an active lecturer sort of moment. Okay, I'm going to pull up the color version now. Same photo. What can you... Purple shirt. Describe the different. Describe the difference. <laughs> so, purple shirt. The man who appeared to be the or appears to be the professor is wearing a very bright purple shirt, and that color is the brightest color in the field, and so it's going straight there. And you're sort of missing the whole student interaction happening in the foreground because they're all wearing gray and sort of nondescript colors. So thank you for entertaining me there. And this is exactly why the black and white, because what the black and white does is it allows us to go to those um, more important details and actions in the photograph. It pulls those out for us and makes them more visible, at least immediately visible. And when you add that color, the color is a very distracting element in a photograph. And so that then becomes the place those bright colors are the places our, our eyes go to first in the photograph. And so this, that was perfect. I couldn't plan it any better because the first thing you said was purple shirt. At our center, we were thinking the black and white adds this kind of air of solemnity and it seems more artistic, whereas color we thought might seem more like the advertising images that we see on websites for centers like colors and strategically pointed fingers at this smart looking equation on the board or something like that. Yeah, and that is one thing that, or that's another thing that I routinely talk about with folks at institutions is the difference between these photographs and uh, those that are usually made by marketing departments. Not to diss marketing departments in, in any way, they have a big job to do. Enrollment's important because they have that job to do. Their photographs are not I'll just say not usually reality. They don't bring to us that the that real part of the classroom. So that was super fun. That puts me in mind. I know Cassandra, you are interested in playful pedagogies and thinking through how to use these kinds of images or this project to engage the senses and things. Can you say a little bit about that and where play becomes important for you in this work? Yeah, Lindsay, so I think it was a great demonstration to just ask you what, and that it's a fairly simple question and there's a place to start. There's no wrong answer. So that we've observed and have used in our own work, that wonderful opening as a place to get the thinking and the process started. More than that, though, in the final chapter in the book, we sought out some input from campus partners on different universities and colleges 
that had also employed the photographs in a variety of ways. And those ranged from things like we just did, right? Bringing a photograph intentionally into maybe a conversation of a committee, thinking about how to transform large courses to have just that kind of conversation. What are the barriers? What do we see? What do we want to change? What's our vision going to be? All the way to methods and the, the example that I talked about earlier of people really understanding and reflecting on their role, what's challenging, what they're bringing to the task of teaching, what they appreciate and what they want some support on. All the way to, as I mentioned, we had an exhibit at the California Institute of Technology. Other campuses have done that too. And one of my favorite stories hearing about the impact of those kinds of exhibits were ones where like the ballroom is full of these poster boards with photographs. The faculty and educators are standing next to images of their own classes. And having these conversations that they would never have before, maybe with the president or provost, maybe with other colleagues, and that being maybe not playful in a way, but like very joyous, which was another theme that came through in some of the images of educational developers at work. And the images, these images, because they're authentic and they're in situ and they are capturing those details, really expressing the joy of discovery when we pause and work on teaching as a community. So those have been some really powerful moments, I guess, in the joy category. I love that. And it's making me think like the use of these images with your students as well could be powerful, particularly we're working right now in our student evaluations of teaching and the process of evaluating faculty. Part of the problem with student evaluations at the end of the semester is they're a little bit dehumanizing for all parties involved. I'm just imagining what if you took pictures of your class throughout the semester and on the day you have them reflect on the class, you pull up these images of them learning throughout the semester. So it calls to mind these specific touch points and helps them collect on their journey or the same with faculty. Here was you at the beginning of the semester Here's you looking like you've been hit by a dump truck at the end of the semester. <laughs> but I think what's happening in our head sometimes is and sometimes is not at all externalized for the people around us. So to have that external artifact helps us to center where we are in reality, which could be so helpful. One of the favorite things that I ran across from people who think about photographs a lot is, I think this was Berger, talking about photographs being devices for transporting appearances and that what we decide to transport is important. So the decision to, to show someone else what's happening in an environment through a photograph is an act of recognition. It's an act of externalizing, like you said, Lindsay, part of the culture that we're aiming for, that we care about, and part of the discourse about what it means to teach and learn in higher education and what makes that distinct from other forms of teaching and learning that we might do throughout our lives. So that's been really meaningful to me to have the book as a vehicle to transport and share some of that meaningfulness about just this whole endeavor of higher education. This is amazing. Usually I'm focused more on asking questions of you all, but I'm just like transported into how would I use this? How could I? 
that's it's great. That's great for me in this role, but it's just so yeah. wonderful. I do want to be mindful, of course, of your time. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to share or insights that have come up for you as you're reflecting on the process? We didn't talk a lot about faculty consultation, but that's one of the other goals that I've had with this project is that when I visit or after I visit an institution and I give them their photographs and I talk to their faculty and staff about the process, that they would take this and do this on their own, either through a center for teaching and learning or some other office on campus. Photographs have been so incredible to use as a foundation in the teaching consultations that Cassandra and I have done together. We've had faculty, some of the quotes from those consultations are in the books at the beginning of chapters throughout the book. And you'll so you'll see them there. Some of them like, if I want to look at these photographs on my deathbed, I can't remember the, the exact quote, but yeah. on my deathbed, I want to remember. And then there's, there's another one about how the faculty member took the photographs home so they could show their family what they did. It does communicate a lot more than you can just relate in a anecdote or story. And so when you talk about faculty evaluation, what better way to talk about teaching with a faculty member than to use something like these photographs of them as the foundation for that important discussion rather than, I'm not saying any other method is better or worse, but I've seen it done in a lot of ways. And rather than going through your notes, for example, and you recounting what you saw, this is just a, this way that Cassandra and I have experienced talking with faculty is, like you said, Lindsay, just spurred much more critical reflection. Cassandra, any final thoughts? Oh, we've covered so much great, great ground. Thank you so much for having us. I'll just plant the seed that there's a chapter that I think is really important about the hidden work of higher education that takes readers and viewers of the photographs and readers of the descriptive text behind those closed office doors and into the kind of liminal spaces that aren't recognized anywhere into the lives and work of, of contingent faculty, of adjunct faculty who may not have a place to hold office hours, to those kind of moments of planning and contemplation and work that go into the part that we even know about publicly about the teaching and the learning, which as we've been discussing has been fairly minimal outside of higher education and even from one department or building to another. And I think that piece is just very important to me. And I would invite people to think about what's been hidden in their own contexts that might benefit from this kind of acknowledgement, visibility, opening of dialogue. Earlier, you said something about naming things and putting them into a place where you can reflect on it. And in some ways, these images feel, my background's poetry. Poetry, you create an experience that cannot, ha cannot be described in any other way. And I think photographs do the same thing. They capture something unique that's also universal. And I think they have a lot more power, lasting power, emotional power, than a lot of the other tools we have to engage people in conversation or reflection. So I'm drinking your Kool-Aid. Let me <laughs> thank you both so much for being here. This has been just 
I've learned so much in this conversation and I just am so appreciative of this book. I think it is, I'm certainly not the first or the last one to say it's just a wonderful resource for those of us doing this work and trying to help faculty feel pride in this profession of teaching. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for having us. We're delighted to get to talk with you. It's been a really enlightening conversation for me too. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.